0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to One Flew Over the Shorebird's Nest, the Del Marva Shorebirds Podcast. My name is Will DeBoer, Director of Broadcasting and Communications for your shorebirds. Welcome to Month Three. Of this season's podcast a little bit later we'll have a real treat for you a truly insightful conversation with one of the architects of birdland's minor league breakthrough orioles director of pitching chris holt the chris holt interview will come in just a few minutes before that we've got new business our call of the week and after that fan shots we begin as always with new business Disney's got nothing on us. On Friday night, we'll dig into the Shorebirds Vault, such that it is for a vintage game rebroadcast of our May 31st, 2004 contest against the Hickory Crawdads, who were a Pirates affiliate back then. A game originally aired on a cable channel that was once called CN8, and the broadcast survives. The star of that Shorebirds team was future MLB All-Star Nick Markakis, one of the top players to ever pass through Delmarva on the way to the show. At Vintage Game, will air Friday night, June 5th at 7pm on Facebook Live. You can watch the game in its entirety, and I'll be providing written side commentary through the Shorebirds Facebook page. Our sincere thanks go out to Carl Holler of Georgetown, Delaware, a longtime season ticket holder who sent us several of his old DVDs of Shortbirds TV broadcasts, including the May 31st, 2004 game, which you will see rebroadcast again on Friday night at 7. Our Flock for a Cause online auction is still live through this Sunday, June 7th. You can bid on one-of-a-kind items like a visit from Sherman Shorebird to your home or business, a lunch with a Shorebirds player at Purdue Stadium, and even broadcast an inning on air with yours truly. All the proceeds go to benefit the Fly Together Fund. And again, the auction ends on Sunday, June 7th. Finally, Thursday we'll have an Eastern Shore Legends profile of the great Jimmy Fox. It's the latest for myself and Eric Day. Jimmy Fox, Hall of Famer, Sudlersville native, and a slugger who, in his day, was often mentioned in the same breath with Babe Ruth. You'll be able to read all about him on Thursday. Right now, our Call of the Week, in which we look back at one of the many, many great moments of last year's 90-win Shorebirds campaign. This week will shine a light on June 5th, 2019, a showdown at Canapolis. With the Shorebirds closing in on the first-half title, the rotation turned to the tandem of Gray Fenter and Drew Rahm. Fenter started the game. Rahm finished it off. Early RBIs from Adam Hall and Doran Turchin put Delmarva up 2-zip. That was more than enough for Fenter, who buzzsawed his way through the first 14 Intimidator batters in a row. He gave up a single with two out in the bottom of the fifth, but then took his revenge out on Luis Curbello. Fenter trying for five scoreless one-hit innings. Put himself in line to win. 1-2 from Gray. Swung on and missed for strike three. Fish on a curveball in the dirt. Fajardo picks up. Fires the first in time to retire the side. Gray Fenter, 14 in a row, retire to start the night. He sits down Curbello after a two-out single, and Gray Fenter, a black mark tonight for Canapolis. In the next inning, Fenter handed the baton off to Drew Rahm, who scattered three singles over his four scoreless innings to emphatically slam the door. 2-1 from Rahm. Rolled towards second, Torres scoops it up, flicks to first, in time, and the ball game is over. One night after getting shut out, the Shorebirds turn the tables. They blank the Canapolis Intimidators three to nothing for their eighth team shutout of the year. Most importantly, they win their 12th series out of 17. Most importantly, they shrink the magic number to six. And the Delmarva Shorebirds are headed back to Arthur W with the northern division title in their grasp. Delmarva would wrap up the division title just one week later. 2019 was a comeback season for Fenter who had Tommy John reconstructive elbow surgery back in 2016. Fenter went 8 and 2 with a team leading 181 ERA and 123 strikeouts over 94 and a third innings. Nineteen year old Rom was no slouch himself. He went six and three with a two hundred ninety three ERA and struck out one hundred and twenty two batters over ninety five and a third innings. Fenter and Rahm were two of five Shorebird starters with a hundred or more strikeouts, joining Grayson Rodriguez, Nick Vespe, and Ryan Wilson. We now present this week's One Flew Over feature interview with Chris Holt, the Orioles' Director of Pitching. Holt was promoted to the brand new position in November. In it, he oversees development of every pitcher in the Baltimore system, major or minor leagues. Before that, Holt was the Orioles' minor league pitching coordinator, a position he took when he followed Mike Elias from Houston to the O's in late 2018. In his first season in charge, the entire Oriole minor league pitching corps went through a resurgence. The Shorberts set a South Atlantic League record with 1,389 strikeouts and led minor league baseball with 20 shutouts. Aberdeen and the Gulf Coast League Orioles had the two lowest ERAs in all of minor league baseball, and Bowie made it to the Eastern League Championship Series on the back of its rotation. Working behind the scenes in all those locales was Holt. Joining us from Portland, Maine, it is Chris Holt, Orioles Director of Pitching. Uh, Chris, uh, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, Will. Good to, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And it sounds like, from what we were talking about beforehand, that uh, Portland, Maine is not a bad place to uh, be for the couple months that we're in lockdown.
1: Portland's been great. It's, uh, you know, if there's going to be any place to be stuck, I mean, in terms of uh, food options and, and curbside and pickup and just uh just the overall vibe up here's been very good um, so it's you know this thing's been tough on everybody but as far as being uh being in the right place I feel like I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than where I'm at here in Portland
0: and a great baseball town too you were telling me that you've actually played uh where the sea dogs play in, in a past life
1: yeah that was uh that was years ago will um back in uh back in 90 i believe 95 96 97 i played uh, high school ball here in Portland. And, uh, when I went to Deering high school, we played our home games at Hadlock field, uh, and then, uh, so did Portland high school. So whenever we would match up with Portland high at Hadlock, it was uh, kind of bragging rights for whose, whose field is this really, you know? So it was a, a really nice yard, Ben. They've made nice improvements and I've heard nothing but good things from our guys and Bowie who have played there. Uh, I spent a series with them in Portland last summer and I uh, got to experience, uh, what they do here at the yard. It's its great. Um, it's a great great town. I know the coaching staff and players that have been here really love it.
0: Yeah, and when you were growing up there, they were a, a Marlins affiliate instead of a Red Sox. Uh, do you remember getting to see any of uh, their top prospects through, pass through Portland? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. I actually, we used to go to a bunch of games, and uh, we saw that first wave come through Charles Johnson and Josh Beckett and uh, A.J. Burnett um, I think Kevin Millar was on one of those teams and Josh booty, like these are some names from the past, but yeah, we saw a lot of those waves of guys come through and some really, really good pitching coming through. We also saw a lot of the Bowie Bay socks that came up during that time. So I remember mm-hmm. Armando Benitez, we used oh. to sit behind the first base dugout. You could hear his fastball from two, three rows back behind the first base dugout. So I know that, uh, my friend and I used to try to go every time Bowie was in town so we could see if Benitez was pitching.
0: Yeah. Oh. I can imagine just uh, seeing those guys pass through and, and thinking to yourself, hey, that, that could be us someday.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's funny how that works out, but uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun to be, you know, working with the AA squad when they come to town here. It's nice to have my family out at the yard and and uh, some family actually come and, and watch the ball games and get a chance to, to see me while I'm at work. And I don't see my family very much during the season, so to have them uh, come visit me during – during the ball games, it's kind of fun and nice for them to, uh, to come take in a game or two, you know?
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. And it's uh, the Bowie guys who you were working with uh, last year and really everybody in the minor leagues. And uh, over the off offseason, uh, you got yourself a promotion to a director of pitching. Uh, first of all, congratulations on that. But uh, I'd like to point out to the listeners, you know, any promotion is great, but a promotion into a position that they created, especially for you, I mean, that's got to be something else.
1: Well, it's, it's been a nice transition. Honestly, well, it's uh, like I've said before, and a a number of other uh, um, discussions I've had with, uh, with media, it's, it's really the same basic uh, job description that I've had in the past. I'm primarily the the pitching coordinator, but also uh, at this point having the opportunity to work side by side with the major league pitching coaches as well. And to have that opportunity to, uh, to work with the players at that level as well. It's been a nice transition and um, to be able to have outreach from the Dominican summer league all the way through to players we have in the big leagues has been really nice and, uh, and a very nice fit uh, bro kale and Darren Holmes and myself have a great working relationship. The communication's been excellent. And uh, you know, we just really, really work to, uh, to utilize each other's strengths in that trio when we're working together. And then, you know, as far as the minor league side goes, well, it's uh You know, we have a really, really solid staff of minor league pitching coaches who are highly committed to using, you know, every resource available that we have, whether it's, you know, technological resources or just basic information, um, being able to use um, continuing education opportunities to improve our skill set so we can be better resources for the, the minor league pitchers as a whole. And so being able to oversee the development of of the minor league coaching staff, as well as the players, has been uh, a very rewarding experience. And uh, we've had a real good opportunity to make some headway with things this past offseason and even during this this remote training uh, cycle that we're going through right now.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sure having that infrastructure really helps uh, with everything that's going on. I'd like to touch on uh, the uh, coaching staffs and everybody who's been brought in Uh, In the first year under the Elias regime and and with you in the fold, uh, we've spent the last couple of years bringing in more outside voices. Uh, Delmarva's pitching coach, uh, Justin Ramsey, from last year, he was at uh, Nova Southeastern, a Division II powerhouse before joining the Orioles. And it seems like that sort of thing is uh, good for helping to uh, penetrate an organizational bubble, you know, bring in fresh ideas that might not be uh, heard from folks who have been in the same role for a number of years.
1: I think, yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, You know, he, he certainly brought years of college experience to the forefront when he joined us on staff and especially being a division two coach, he had to, you know, he had to recruit um, quality arms, but also develop a lot of quality arms because at the division two level, you, you may recruit a handful of guys that are top level talent that, perhaps slipped through the cracks in a D one program or just decided to stay closer to home. But mm-hmm. for the most part, division two, II, division three, NAI coaches really have to work to develop. And so, you know, he certainly brought a wealth of experience with both, you know, working with top level arms, but also developing some guys into top level arms and then doing it in a winning environment. I mean, they won a national championship a few years back. And, you know, he and Greg Brown, who was the head coach at the time uh, is now the hitting coordinator with the Rays you know, they brought a lot of professionalism to that program, and so it really wasn't too much of a departure in terms of his day-to-day. You know, he, uh, he and Brownie really operated really well side-by-side, and, and it was a nice fit for Ramsey to come in and, and obviously, you know, bring some, some solid ideas and experience to what we're working with this pitching system.
0: And it definitely paid dividends both for the team and for him. He was coach of the year in the South Atlantic League. The Shorebirds set a league record with strikeouts last year, 1,389. And that seems to have been one of the big uh, tenants of the development last year, bringing out guys' uh, hammer pitches and and upping the strikeout numbers. Is that based more on uh, teaching guys new pitches or simply helping them to, to weaponize what they've already got?
1: I think it's a good combination of both. I, I feel like a lot of times when this question gets asked, it's like, you know, what is what's what is the reason that we're able to strike so many guys out compared to before? And and honestly, it's always going to be a combination. I think the the number one thing that we want to instill in in pitchers is that we want to be on attack. And so just being on attack with kind of average weapons um, is something that is marginally effective so at the same time we're working to improve our stuff but then attack with it and and the intent to strike guys out is is very important the goal of of working to to create swing and miss and and then also develop the pitches that create swing and miss out of the zone is is certainly a piece of what we're working and i think that that's across the game right now so it's nothing terribly new or or secretive or special it's really just setting that goal for the pitchers and then letting them know they have the ability to do this instead of just kind of trying to spot up and pitch to contact and and the things that maybe traditionally in the past were uh, a little more effective when the strike zone is a little different and at this point we're just working to take advantage of where the game has evolved to.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it seems to be, you know, you're not trying to force a square peg into a round hole and vice versa. And there are so many different ways to be a strikeout pitcher. I think of a couple of the guys yeah. we've had in Del Marva the last few years. You've got Grayson Rodriguez, who's got uh, gas and, and can blow guys away. But you've also got a crafty lefty like Zach Lowther, who piled up insane strikeout numbers and, and had a fastball that was barely touching 90.
1: Yeah. So yeah, the differences are pretty uh, interesting there. And and again, it it does prove the point that there, there are a number of different ways to be effective as a pitcher in the big leagues or in professional baseball in general. I think that each guy has a recipe that's unique to him based on his stuff and his delivery and his ability to command his pitches. And so I think that the safe thing to assume here is that as an organization, we are working to maximize and optimize the individual based on his strengths and the strengths that we're working to also build through development. And again, it's like there there is no one secret or recipe. It's like really working to have the player understand how he best can do what he does and then bring those strengths to his attention and let him build off of those.
0: Mm-hmm. It's all about working uh, with what he's got and what you've got and what the numbers are spitting out. And one of the big things uh, I would guess uh, played into the Orioles' uh, development last year in the minor leagues was the ability to take those numbers out and bring them into the real world. Uh, What have you found are some of the best ways to help your pitchers uh, make that connection between what they're seeing on on some of the advanced cameras and technology and, and applying that to an actual real say fourth inning uh, mound first situation
1: yeah i think the important thing to to take a look at with respect to that question is and again this is this is pretty general will but it's really just being able to consistently communicate accurate information to pitchers and i think if you if you have kids in school and they're working on a certain subject and they get assessed through either a quiz or a test and then they're able to go back and see what is the truth behind how proficient they are in that subject. You know, when it comes to learning how to maximize your stuff or your command as a pitcher or learn your best delivery, we're really looking to just be communicating the most accurate information consistently so that we have a a very, very substantive and individualized process for each guy. And so when you're able to do that, it takes away a lot of the guesswork. It takes away a lot of question marks that a player might have it can it can really seek to engage the player in his own development because sometimes when a player knows what he needs to work on he can find his own best way to do it or his own best how and you know sometimes i think traditionally in the game of baseball certainly you know my experience in pro ball it was a little general it was a little vague and so you never really i never really knew what to work on it was like yeah uh you need to throw more downhill or yeah, you need to use more fastball percentage or, you know, there are some kind of vague things that were kind of thrown at us in the early 2000s that, you know, if it made sense to you, great. And if it didn't, you're kind of on your own. Whereas we're really working to partner with the player to to find his best way. And when it comes to numbers and cameras and all those things that are tools, you know, they understand where those things fit in as far as, you know, accurate feedback. And so I I also liken it to this. It's, you know, you have kids in school, do you want a teacher who's going to use a chalkboard and an abacus, or do you want the teacher who's using the smart board, the iPad, and and speeding up the learning curve?
0: Yeah, Uh, just to stay on the academic theme, it seems like uh, the approach has been more at uh, liberal arts college, individual tutoring over uh, mass-produced large uh, lecture hall teaching.
1: Yeah, it could be. I think uh, again, it's. I, I think that it's a, it's a level of engagement too. Will I think that's the biggest thing is that when guys feel engaged in their own development, and they know what they're working on and why. It just it just breeds a whole different culture and attitude. And and seriously, like that's that's what it takes for these guys. Because a lot of the guys that that we have are so talented, and just working to to direct that talent and to turn the head in the right direction and know what to focus on so that they can put 100% of their, their determination, focus, heart, if you want to call it that, into their work and, and be doing it with, with something that has merit and, and backing that we can show them, whether it's with numbers or with video or, or just in general, like here's what big leaguers do and here's where you're at and here's what we're working on. It's, it's, it's a very nice way to be able to just be real with a player.
0: hmm well, we're talking with Chris Holt on the podcast. He's the director of pitching for the Baltimore Orioles. And uh, Chris, I know, I know uh, nobody likes to play favorites uh, in the system, but uh, who development-wise uh, most impressed you last year? It could be either of uh, some of the blue-chippers or the guys who uh, seemingly came out of the blue.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's always a tough question because I honestly, like, when I look at the entire group, I feel like everybody really put in solid work last year. And, and a lot of guys made such big leaps, you know, it's, you know, to go through every single guy will, would take a long time, but, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as, as far as the guys who, you know, were really, really engaged in their work and made significant jumps. I mean, I can point to a couple of examples that, that might be, uh, nice to uh, to point out, which is, you know, obviously we have guys that you saw a year like Grayson Rodriguez and, and Gray Fenter, and mm-hmm. you saw Blaine Knight early. And, you know, for a guy, let's just start with Grayson, right? So Grayson's a kid who in his first full season, you know, really made solid strides with learning more about his, his best delivery and repeatability. And that, I think that surely was able to be seen through his, his strike throwing percentages and his ability to command all pitches an attack with a plan. He also, for the first time in his life, you know, started throwing a change up with some regularity. He didn't need that pitch in high school, but it was such a game changer for him as a starting pitcher in professional baseball in his first full season. That's a really encouraging thing to see a kid learn it and go use it to his advantage and perform with it. Mm-hmm. And then of course, like Gray Fenter, um, seeing him number one, coming back off of uh, Tommy John surgery and, and staying healthy throughout the entire year and then really making solid strides with how he's using his stuff and and really getting those breaking balls going. Well, he started to get his change up much, much more improved and, and being able to use it to his advantage. Uh, just re- very encouraging things to see from such a group that, uh, you know, the previous year and, you know, had been, um, perhaps doing some things a little differently, but, you know, these guys really embraced the work, embraced the direction, and then went went and performed with it, which was really great to see. Um, as far as the group at Frederick goes, you know, I mean, we really saw some nice jumps. And, and as far as Frederick, like just flat out, Frederick's a really tough level. It's, it's, uh, it's a level where you start to see some older guys that are repeat guys in the lineup that might be a little bit older that work in approach. And so for the guys that we had at Frederick, to see them learn – That they can't always just, you know, stuff their way through a game. You know, I might throw 95, but I got to pitch a little more here. And so to see DL make the strides he did um, to see Blaine Knight, you know, really have to work to to get guys out consistently. And and he really fought through a, a very tough year. But kept his head above water and really continued to fight all year. And uh can't say enough about his fortitude mentally with, with staying on what he's working on. Uh, Cam Bishop made significant strides last year with his delivery, and you know, he upticked his overall velocity last year, which was a great thing to see. So again, just pointing to the A-ball levels, like significant strides from a number of guys at those levels. And then of course, you know, when you get into the buoy roster. Um, You know, Zach Lowther, Alex Wells, you know, they both put up tremendous years in terms of performance and and still working to improve some of how they're, you know, mixing in their different pitches and and using their their pitch percentages a little bit differently than previously. Keegan Aiken, you know, really had to work to do that last year at Norfolk. And, you know, Mike Bauman going from Frederick to Bowie and doing what he did at double A just to see to see these guys really you know, stay with the continuity from that level to the next was was really encouraging and, you know, so proud of the guys for really improving how they were able to do their daily work and and stick to the process.
0: Yeah, it was up and down the organization, a really, really great year one of of the new approach to see everything. And now uh, year one's in the books and we're uh, in the middle of year two. We would have been about halfway through, year or two, if, if not for world events, but uh, how does this uh, long hiatus impact development, do you think, down the line? Uh, if the miners start late or don't even get to play again until 2021, do you assign everybody to uh, where you wanted to put them, or do you have to slow it down a bit?
1: Yeah, those are, those are questions that will remain to be seen, Will. It's really, I think I'd like to highlight the important thing here, which is we haven't stopped. You know, as soon as we left florida the minor league camp broke out of florida i think march 13th and 14th some guys it took them a few extra days to get home and driving or had to wait around to fly out but you know since about march 20th 21st you know by the time those guys all got home we were able to you know write up a training a two-month training plan that basically sought to kind of keep them on a gradual buildup and also keep their overall work capacity steady so that they didn't detrain, but also didn't overdo any work at home. Mm-hmm. And so the one thing I'll say across the board with the players, the coaches, from from the DSL through the big leagues is everybody's been doing work, you know, and everyone's been using this time and trying to make the most of the time that they do have. And so developmentally, you know, we have started to, use this time almost as a secondary off season to approach development work, development goals, whether it's delivery work or improving pitches or spins. Uh, Some guys will start to bite off on a a velocity development program here in the near future. If we're going to be delayed any further so that they can get some more high intensity work. So overall it's like, yes, it would be great to be seeing guys out on field playing games right now. I think we're all missing baseball, but as far as this downtime goes, we have been using this time to the, the most of our advantage as, as much as we possibly can. And each pitching coach in the organization has had a group of players that they stay in constant contact with on a weekly basis to oversee the training and to oversee kind of the workload that's going on. Um, a lot of players are shooting video clips on their phones and, and corresponding with those coaches so that they can be back and forth on, you know, feedback for delivery or for spins. And so it's been a, it's been a. As much as it's been difficult, I I really can't say enough about the work that the the coaches and the players have all putting in at this point, and really making the most of it.
0: Yeah, you know, a distance learning. It's not just for uh, colleges and high schools. It's for ball players as well. It but, is,
1: and it's 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 a very big challenge. It's the first time we've had to do anything like this. And like I said, I I just can't say enough with the attitude and the and the culture we've we've worked to build here. Even in year one, it's like you know this was this was going to be a challenge no matter which way you slice it. But again, it's, you know, these guys have really embraced uh, what we're trying to do here. And it's, it's really been nice to see them, you know, making strides, making improvements from remote. And, and some of those guys came to early camp or instructional camp and had a little bit of uh, kind of an early go in spring training. And so a, a vast majority of those guys that came in, You know, really were able to go back and work on some of the things that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to work on as quickly in a competitive cycle. So, you know, as much as we would all like to be playing baseball, we're, you know, we're definitely using this time to our advantage.
0: And it helps to have a group of players who, buy into it and just naturally want to get better and want to stay in shape during all this. I mean, it's not like it was 60 years ago where spring training was about losing the beer gut and actually getting back into (laughs) any sort of athletic shape. These guys are are ready to go pretty much 24-7, 365.
1: They are, and it also speaks, I mean, to that point, you know, um, Nick White, our new uh, coordinator for strength and conditioning, he and the strength coaches as a group have been, in contact with the players for their strength and conditioning programs. Matt Blood, our our director of player development has been nonstop with both, you know, keeping players engaged on Zoom calls and and doing different, you know, uh, development related Zoom topics. Our our, uh, mental skills coordinator, Catherine Rowe has been holding weekly sessions on Zoom for mental skills work. And so, as far as you know, what Matt Blood has brought to the table, as far as you know, the culture and the curriculum, and, and bringing this whole thing together, I, I really don't think it could have been better timing for you know what it is that we've had to work with here, and and what it is that we've been able to achieve with the timing as a group, as a whole. So, you know, this this whole thing, it's been amazing to see every department really pull together, and and handle their business as well as they possibly could have to the players' advantage.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a fun time to be around the Orioles organization uh, in normal times and in abnormal times like this. And we had a great time with the pitching in Delmarva in 2019, but we also looked down the line at what Aberdeen and the Gulf Coast League Orioles were doing. I mean, they had the two best ERAs in all of minor league baseball, and we were really excited for what was to come. Um, Can you give us a preview of who we might see uh, in Del Marva in 20 or 21 or whenever we do get back to the field?
1: Well, as I mentioned before, it's tough to uh, it's tough to project right now a placement of players and and how this how this entire situation will affect, you know, how how things go forward. But uh, in terms of the overall draft class from 2019, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, this fan base should be very excited about this initial draft class. You know, we're extremely proud of the work that these guys put in upon arrival. And especially with the talent that they already brought to the table, it's, you know, it's been amazing to watch these guys work in their first half season of pro ball. Aberdeen did a great job. You know, Robbie is a first year pitching coach in pro ball, uh, really worked well with those guys at Aberdeen and, and really did solid work. And, and those guys took the work and performed with it. Adam Blade took over as the GCL pitching coach last year. And, you know, for such a young pitching coach, really, really putting in solid daily work with those guys and and coming to work with a plan every day. And those guys, upon arrival, you know, had some of the best work I've seen in all my time in pro ball, like right away as they got into pro ball. So it, it was, again, really encouraging to see the work go in and then see them go out and perform with it. And again, I think it just speaks to the overall engagement level and the individualization we, we bring for each player. And, you know, as far as, you know, 2020 and, and what we would have seen this year, it's it's tough to say because we had not, we had not uh, selected teams and rosters yet. But, you know, as far as the 19 draft class, you know, the guys that were Aberdeen, you know, we have a, a really solid group of starting pitchers. We have a really solid group of relief arms and and some really special stuff. So Without trying to get into details on who's going to be where, it's just too tough to do that, Will. But uh, mm-hmm. I can assure you that the, uh, the the quality of arms coming up the chain is going to be really exciting to
0: watch. Yep. He's Chris Holt, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Orioles Director of Pitching. Uh, Chris, one last thing before we let you go. What's on the menu tonight uh, in Portland, Maine? <laughs>
1: Well, you know what? I, I think we might be doing breakfast for dinner tonight. I, you know, my, my wife has some things that she really is is spe- highly specialized for dinner, but I think she's going to take the night off. I, I'm probably looking at doing like a Holt family omelet station. Um, we have a local bakery that uh, bakes their own sourdough bagels. And so we've got some of those frozen. So we might have to fire up some of those guys and, and do a breakfast for dinner tonight.
0: How about it? I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> Uh, All right, Chris, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, all the best to you uh, through the rest of this summer. And and we can't wait to see uh, what ends up in Delmarva uh, on the mound and uh, in 2021 or beyond.
1: Excellent, Will. Thanks. Stay safe.
0: Absolutely. You too. Our thanks again to Chris Holt for a truly insightful and candid conversation. You can follow him on Twitter at ChrisHolt20. There's also a new Orioles Player Development account that you can follow, at osplayerdev. That's O-S-Player-D-E-V. Moving along to Fan Shots, the segment for Shorebirds fans by Shorebirds fans. Submit your favorite shorebird memories, and you can hear them on this podcast. We'll take either written or spoken submissions sent to wdeboer at theshorebirds.com, or as a post as a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This week, we'll check in on the memory of Ronald Borschik. Quote, I was on vacation from Pittsburgh attending a shorebirds 15th anniversary game. I was able to get autographs from Billy Ripken, Governor Martin O'Malley, and Delmarva's Michael Givens, who was a shortstop at the time. O'Malley's visit was not the first time nor the last a sitting governor of Maryland would make his way to Purdue Stadium. In June of 2018, Governor Larry Hogan came across the bridge to christen the Governor's Cup Trophy before a game against Hagerstown. He also did some pregame juggling on the field. Now, I'm not going to say that that appearance is what got him re-elected five months later, but I won't say that it didn't either. People like a juggling gov. And that was the fan shot of Ronald Borschach. that will do it for another episode of one flew over the shorebirds nest don't forget to like subscribe and leave a five-star review of the podcast we're hosted on anchor.fm also available on apple and spotify keep up with the shorebirds online visit theshorebirds.com or give us a follow on facebook twitter and instagram you can follow me on twitter at will DeBoer. our guest chris holt is at chris holt 20 and the orioles player development account is at o's player Dev. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode featuring 2019 Shorebirds Closer and current Detroit Tigers farmhand, Ruben Garcia. New episodes are available both during this hiatus and whenever we get back to baseball. Until then, this is Will DeBoer saying stay healthy, stay safe, and may all your favorite bands stay together. You've been listening to One Flew Over the Shorebirds Nest, the Delmarva Shorebirds podcast. So long, everybody. This has been a production of the Delmarva Shorebirds Baseball Club. Class A affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles.